Okay, hello there. Good to see you again. If you were worried that because it was Sunday they might have turned the machine off, <laughs> don't be alarmed. <laughs> right. So, some more time together to see what we notice in heart and mind and body and world and the whole realm of experience. We spoke a little bit yesterday morning and beginning of the day about some of the ways we could open up this sense of friction or freeness which, which you know, basically define our experience. In any moment there's either some friction or there's some freeness. Right? Sometimes one's very caught up in you know, some difficulty feeling caught up in something, oppositional to something. And often in, um, you know, often that gets the focus, actually, in Dharma practice. We don't come to Dharma practice because everything's feeling fluid and wonderful and sweet and, you know, we come because of some friction. And you can think of your own origins, like, why did you come to this kind of practice? Why did you get interested in meditation? And we might be looking for different things, or think we're looking for different things when we first come. But basically, we're dealing with friction, and we're looking for freeness. And then when we engage with practices and teachings, you know, because we've come because of the friction, and the difficulty, the struggle in some way, we, that's what we're attending to very often. We're tending to it, and we get moments where things ease up or free up that are relieving, and that you know that keeps us engaged in that practice. If that hadn't happened, you wouldn't have hung in there, right? You would have gone and done something else if there had been no relief, no benefit. So, a lot of what we're doing, and of course, you know. In, Dharma world, talk about dukkha or suffering a lot. So we've, there's a lot of focus on the friction. Sometimes, so much so, and somebody mentioned yesterday, you know, the worry about when feeling calm. And sometimes so much so that we don't notice so much or we don't train ourselves to notice the moments when there isn't friction. And there's actually ease. There's a non-problematic moment. And we're like, oh, what should I do? I bet there must be some problem somewhere. I'd better go looking for it. When I mentor students individually, you know, and over time and exploring what's going on, and then sometimes somebody will come and they'll say, oh, I don't know what to talk about because, you know, there's nothing wrong. <laughs> and often those are the richest explorations we have. Just to, oh, okay, so just really letting oneself, and the encouragement then, let yourself feel. Here's a moment where there's no, where circumstances don't feel particularly difficult, maybe, and or where my response to circumstances isn't charged by anything. It's not, oh, there's an uncompelled mind, not reaching to have things be a certain way or to get something. An uncontracted mind. 
not in conflict with anything, not pulling back from anything. Undefended. Undistracted. Oh. And, you know, we're pointing, Dharma practice is often pointing to those expansive, easeful, um, intimate qualities of experience. And yet often it seems either we don't notice them when they, when they come along, even in simple or small ways, or we notice them and we're glad of them maybe, but we, we don't train ourselves so well in the capacity and the really important, actually, the need to sort of to bathe in the goodness of those moments. Right? To bathe, oh. You know, we, d- we tend to define ourselves by our misery. You know, we feel okay in a Dharma setting to t- speak about, you know, my, my issues, my problems, my struggles, my, you know, my pain, my... Uh, and sometimes, for some especially, it can be actually rather uncomfortable to speak of oh, the, the blessings of this practice and what it's like to sit in an easeful body when that's there. So on that spectrum, fr- friction, freeness, just to, just to invite you to see for yourself. For some, it's not such an issue. For some, actually, that kind of open or easeful spaces open up and one finds oneself just very much able to enter into and to enjoy. But just to see for yourself what that's, how that is for you. And when I talk about bathing in the goodness of that, it's really, it's sort of like letting, letting yourselves become familiar with ease. Often what we do, especially first few times that we might experience a kind of real depth of relaxation or a real quality of a very, very expanded uh, consciousness or a, a very, very refined sense of just the pleasure of being still or being sensitive to life. And because it's so unusual the first few times, we tend to get kind of excited about it. Oh my God, look what's happening. Da-da-da. And then, what does it mean? And how close is this to full enlightenment? And, 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 you know, right? and of course, quite quickly, that getting excited about it starts to corrupt the experience. And then it fades, and then we get busy with how to make it come back again, and, and all of that. As if that would be possible. Not that we've ever, ever had any other experience that we've been able to make come back again. Right? Can you have a previous experience again? Right? And yet, the sense, oh yeah, but that experience, what, what was I doing when it happened? And how was I breathing? Etc. It's understandable, right? That when something is unusual, it has a big impact. When something has a big impact, we tend to you know, think about it a lot, get excited about it. But increasingly, you know, as we get more used, actually, to more expansive states, we have the opportunity to, like I say, to sort of bathe in those states. To not, it doesn't matter, we don't need to think about why they're here or how they come they're here, but actually letting our cells become familiar with them. 
rather than knowing about oh, that, that state what it means and oh, how's it described and is it a jhana and if so which number you know, it's just ah oh. it's like it's, it sounds a little strange when I say getting ourselves to know this because we don't think of ourselves as being intelligent right and I don't know in a sort of scientific way whether cells are intelligent but experientially my cells feel intelligent well I know, let's not call them my cells <laughs> but ce cellular life feel yeah it feels like there's a cellular intelligence right which is very very different than cognitive intelligence or even emotional intelligence yeah, cellular intelligence right the way kind of this this whole field of bodily life can learn. It's like our nervous system can learn how to meet experience. Our nervous system can learn about friction. Our nervous system is what really learns actually about letting go, about softening. Our nervous system or our cells what learns about how to actually give ourselves to what's happening, how to relax into experience. And that sort of cellular intelligence, that sort of embodied practice, right? listening to life with the whole of us, listening with our nervous system, is mu it's a much more reliable way of kind of integrating the goodness of our practice and the insights of our practice. Much more reliable than, than the, the cognitive attempt to you know, make sense of what's happening. Of course there's a place for that. But the cognitive uh, sense-making works much better when it comes out of the foundation of cellular uh, uh, what? orientation. You know, in some traditions they speak about the, the uh, well, I think it gets translated sometimes as three brains. I don't think that's particularly accurate, right? But, but, like the, but you know there's a lot of neurons in the belly. Right? So sometimes it's spoken about as the second brain. I think that does a dysfunction, disservice to the belly, right? But it's more like, I would say, centers of intelligence. Like the you know, embodiment and the belly center is like the center of cellular intelligence or embodied intelligence, like kinesthetic intelligence. And then heart is the center of emotional intelligence. And then the brain is the center of... No, not the brain. The head center is the center of cognitive intelligence. And they've got organs. The belly center has an organ that lives near, near it, right, called the stomach. And the heart center has an organ that lives near it called the heart. And the head center has an organ that lives near it called the brain. But those, it seems to me, the physical organs don't have a great deal to do with those intelligences. And we know that, um, this is not at all what I was planning to speak about, but never mind. We know that with the heart, right? We know that the, the organ here just pumps blood, right? And what we speak about when we mean the heart as a, the kind of emotional center, the feeling center, we don't think that feeling is happening to do with the organ, 
right? Even though we give them the same name, heart, heart. But, but uh, because we're very often, we're kind of act, quite activated in the head center. Right? We're activated cognitively. So we have this overlay between mind or cognitive intelligence and brain. And then we get excited because we can see things happening in the brain. You can wire up meditators' brains and you can see things happening. And maybe you know, and maybe people who do some of the research in that have spoken here, etc. It's very, very interesting, right? some of the neurological research around what happens in the brain. But you, know, you, you could probably find things that happen in the heart in different emotional states as well. Right? With certain emotions, maybe the, the heart starts to pump quicker. But it's not, it's not the organ isn't responsible for feeling life. In the same way, it seems to me, the brain as an organ isn't responsible for cognitive intelligence. Anyway. So, mostly there was this encouragement, okay, these three centers of intelligence, they work better when they're kind of stacked up in that order. Right? That the primary or the foundational intelligence of a deepening relationship with life and a deepening understanding and a deepening capacity to, to feel what's happening, understand what's happening and respond to what's happening freely is the belly center. In and down, like we were exploring yesterday. And that based on that then, oh, based on the stability, the ground, the sort of the capacity of our nervous system to sense into and allow and relax into what's happening is the best ground for developing kind of you know, emotional intelligence, capacity to really to feel into and to digest emotional experience. And then for the cognitive intelligence, the sort of brilliance of mind that can really be there to reflect finally, to, to consider, to explore. So, as I said, I didn't, I didn't really mean to open up to speak about these three centers of intelligence, but it fits a little bit with something I, I did think to mention this morning, which is another way of opening up the sense of friction that we spoke about yesterday. You can sort of look at the way we get into um, friction, the way we get caught up or tight. And you can look at it just in physically, where it basically shows up as tension. Or you can look at it emotionally, cognitively, where it shows up as drama. And that's, you know, in terms of just all our reactivity, all the second arrow dukkha. It's tension and drama. We might, you know, call it all kinds of things, but when we come back and just saying, what am I doing with life? What am I doing with my experience or to my experience that's making it hurt or that's making it problematic or that's, you know, giving a sense of, of struggle? Oh, there's tension and drama. 
And, you know, among maybe other things, I thought to just look through those lenses a little bit this morning or today, looking at tension and drama. And again, the, the more embodied bit is a better foundation. It's easier if you can work with the tension. Often, oh, you can short-circuit some of the drama. And actually, when, once one can work effectively with tension and l really learn how, that it's possible to relax into experience and then how to relax into experience, then actually trusting the capacity to relax into experience. That relaxation, that steadiness, that capacity to just stay here with, then is a, is a much more reliable foundation for dealing with the drama. Otherwise, if you're just trying to deal with the drama without that foundation, what happens, right? You tend to just generate more and more drama, the, the drama of trying to deal with the drama. And you just, if you listen to the conversations that you hear on the street or among your family or co-workers or in your own mind, maybe, a lot of conversations where, where there's some, you know, some difficult, it's, oh, it's, that's drama. That's the drama of trying to deal with drama. And a lot about the tension, dealing with the tension part, is really is just about relaxing. Sometimes I hear meditation uh, instructions or meditation teachers making a strong distinction between, uh, well, you know, this isn't just relaxation, you know. No. But actually, in great part, in my own experience, to a great degree, a very, very great degree, meditation really is all about relaxing. 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 Relaxing the tension. Relaxing the drama. Relaxing the reactivity. Also, if we make this whole practice and say, oh, it's all about relaxing. Oh, this maybe sounds a little more accessible, a little more easy, a little more attractive maybe than trying to you know, deal with a lot of the cognitive frameworks that we might add on to drama, to dharma practice. <laughs> We've already got plenty of drama practice. But of course, relaxation, you know, it's easy to say, oh, just relax. But then one has to see what we mean, what are our associations with relaxing. And culturally, all our, all our associations with relaxing involve some form of going unconscious. We relax, you know, take a nap, relax, watch TV, relax, have a few drinks, relax. And we don't really, you know, it's hard to think of a culturally endorsed or culturally reinforced uh, relaxation that doesn't involve going unconscious. We're actually developing one. It's called mindfulness, right? That's the new culturally uh, understandable uh, way of relaxing. 
And so I think it's, it's helpful, actually, to bring that quality of relaxation very forward in how we speak about Dharma practice and mostly in how we orientate to Dharma practice. But of course, it's not a relaxation by going unconscious. It's, oh, it's actually the opposite, where the relaxation and becoming more conscious, more aware, feed each other. Of course, most of our... We also have... When we talk about focusing, just focus, or concentrate, we also have associations of that with becoming tense. Right? I remember at school being told to concentrate. I was like, concentrate! I was like, the idea of trying to concentrate on my work you know, involved gripping the pencil tightly and, and you know, kind of furrowing the brow, trying to concentrate on math or something. But actually, meditation practice is very much where, where focus and relaxation go together. And so they both are opposite to the sort of associations we have with them. We're relaxing. As we relax, we become more attuned, more sensitive to what's happening. We're more able to focus. And as we become more focused, we can, the focus shows us what little areas of tension can be there and allows them to relax. And that feeds the quality of relaxation. And then relaxing into presence, contact, brightness of mind. And when that's operating like that, and focus and relaxation actually supporting and enhancing each other, that's really how, that's how cellular intelligence uh, grows or flourishes. That's how real embodiment develops. That's the real, the real taste of embodiment, I would say, is the feeling, a basic feeling of relaxation, feeling of bodily ease, and discovery that it's, it's basically pleasant, it's basically um, gratifying to be alive. It's like body likes being here. Of course, not often it doesn't, but that's you know that's the overlay of all the pushing and pulling, the tensions and dramas. But as they soften, we discover it's it's basically it's nice to be in a body. And that that body might have specific uh, difficulties or illnesses or injuries or or unpleasant aspects to it. But the fundamental sense of being alive, being embodied, being incarnated, being here, is um, it's hard to find a, a, a good word. I don't want to just put a sort of pleasant sounding word, but it's basically it's good. It's good. And we can feel that goodness. And trust that goodness. We can give ourselves to that goodness. And so, in terms of you know working with the friction on this level of just you know the the body's version, and the tensions that we create, just to see how we can you know again and again orientate to a certain softening. How can I relax a little bit right now?
And that's not to make any problem out of the moments where tensions arise, right? Because, oh, great. It's great to notice tensions. Because when you notice tensions, that's the place of possibility. Firstly, can this tension just soften a bit? Often, it, that's all it's needed. It can just, when we notice it, oh, the noticing is enough to soften it. And when that's not possible, sometimes we notice it, and can it relax? No. Okay. That's when we have the opportunity for some inquiry. Then how come? What might help it to relax? What seems important to me about staying tense? And sometimes belly is hard. Can it relax? No. Okay, well, how come? What, am I, what do I believe I'm, I'm managing by staying tense? Oh, I feel like I'm protecting myself. Oh, from what? What do I believe would happen if I soften my belly here? Oh, I would feel vulnerable. Oh, and that reminds me of when I was young and, and felt like I had to stay tense because of X or Y. So engaging with, with, we could say physical tension, but sometimes it's not muscular physical, sometimes it's more energetic physical. Engaging with tension either allows us to, to relax helpfully, or engaging with tension allows us to explore and, and to understand why that tension is there, what it's doing, what we believe about it. And it seems to me that that trajectory of softening, relaxing, entering into, embodying, is an infinite trajectory. Sometimes when we speak you know, conventionally, ordinarily about relaxation, it's as if it's an on or off thing, right? Intense or you're relaxed. No, the question, are you, am I relaxed? It doesn't really yield the yes or no answer, actually. Oh, what's... Am I relaxed? It's as good as a contemplation. It's not so good as a question if you're trying to answer it. But most good questions are like that, actually. Right? They're, most good questions are better to be followed and explored rather than just answered. So... As we, as we sit and practice this morning, I'd just like to focus a little bit on, this, on uh, this part of the tension and drama and the freeness and friction. It's the really the entering into and the invoking uh, the possibility of relaxing, relaxing in a way that actually yields more presence, more sensitivity, more aliveness in body and nervous system. So if you need to take a often the relationship to relaxation or the quality of relaxation is more to do actually with a feeling, a felt sense of being loose, fluid, at ease and gentle with experience than, than simply just a matter of muscular softening. Right? When we're sitting, for example, and one of the beautiful things about the, the actual posture of meditation is that it's, it's very upright, 
but one can experience a sense of being completely relaxed. There must be some muscular integrity that's necessary, but often one can't feel what one's doing to maintain the uprightness. If the posture's really, it just feels like, oh, the vertebrae are really just relaxed, one on top of another, all the way down. But, you know, something must be going on to, to keep to keep this upright. So, and yet the feel of oh, a certain softening, ease, fluidity, allowing, can be very much intact. And similarly with walking, right? The muscles have got to be doing something to walk. So if we spend a little time in some walking practice with the same encouragement oh, to rest into the walking, relax into the walking, soften into the walking, to feel for that a certain taste of ease, gentleness, allowing. Feeling kind of soft in the body field. And to let that be more the focus of this this quality of relaxation than worrying too much about muscular tension. You know, something's going on in the legs and spine and arms, right, clearly. And at the same time, one might well notice things that aren't involved in the walking, like, you know, the jaw or the eyes being tense or the neck and the shoulders. Oh, yeah. And if you, when you, you know, the, the back and forth of walking, often when you get to the end of your path, and just stopping, just seeing, just kind of, sort of, not exactly scanning through the body, but just, just tracking what's going on. Oh. And it may be, certainly if there's those places that you maybe already know about, where you habitually store tension, and just checking those areas, and wanting to just soften, soften, soften. In those, in those areas. I spent a, a, quite a long time really just attending just to that, just tensing and softening while moving about through the day. Just noticing how easily an interaction with something or someone or some situation leads to some, some unnecessary degree of, of, of posturing, tensing, structuring oneself and how even a very subtle movement towards just dropping that can can transform one's sense of the situation transform one's sense of self in that moment and and actually really offer us a sense of a, a, a freer participation in life Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.